millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello again, folks. Welcome back to the Napoleon Assist after what has been far too long. I've been taking a bit of much-needed time to pause, reset and have a think about what the future holds for this show. There'll be more on that in a future episode, with details about how you can become part of an exciting new look podcast that will put you, the listeners, at the centre of a hub of Napoleonic activity. Today, though, I'm bringing you something that you may recall hearing a little while back. I've made no secret of the fact that I'm a passionate advocate of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wargraves charity, the organisation which I was proud to set up last year. We aim to honour veterans of the period 1775 to 1815 by restoring their graves so that they can become sites of memory for the public, educating people about their experiences and, importantly, making sure that when individuals are disturbed as a result of archaeological digs, building work or chance discoveries, that those people's bodies are then afforded the dignity of a burial in a marked grave. We vehemently believe that death in the service of your country is a tragedy at whatever point in history it took place, and giving these individuals that respect is the very least that we can do. Why tell you about this now though? Well, I'm delighted to say that the NRWGC's website is now live and is taking membership subscriptions as well as donations. So if you've been hearing about the charity's aims and works and have been keen to get involved, now is your chance. Membership costs £25 a year and comes with a range of perks, including discounts at military history publishers, free access to the charity's monthly talks, and discounts on its in-person events as well. Not to mention a rather fetching and shiny pin badge, because let's be honest, it's always about the pin badge. On in-person events, while I'm kind of on that theme, the charity is also organising the second War and Peace in the Age of Napoleon conference. It brings together over 50 speakers from across the world and promises to be one of the biggest gatherings of Napoleonic experts and enthusiasts in 2022. 
It's taking place across the 8th to the 10th of September. It includes a guided tour of Apsley House from the charity's heritage lead, Marcus Cribb, an exclusive drinks and canapes reception at the Household Cavalry Museum, the charity's AGM, an opportunity to meet its trustees, and of course the conference itself, which will feature a host of Napoleonicist regulars, including, but by no means limited to, Beatrice de Graff, Ed Cost, Charles Esdale, and Jackie Reiter. It's going to be a fantastic event, and best of all, you don't need to come to the National Army Museum in London, where it's being hosted, in order to attend, because we are also putting it online in a live stream. What The way that'll work is that you will get access to one kind of thread of talks over the course of the day, so one room will be live streamed, but we're also going to do our best to record all the talks so that those who bought tickets don't have to worry about missing out on something they wanted to hear because it clashed with another talk that they were also desperate to see. All in, we're talking more than 30 hours of talks, so you are not going to want to miss it. What, you need, what do you need to do then? Well, check the post description. There'll be a link to the Eventbrite booking page where you can choose which parts you want to attend. Please bear in mind that uh, we are approaching the um, the event itself. It's not far out now, and so we are starting to sell out tickets in a number of areas. So if you do want to attend in person, don't worry about the online element, there's plenty going on there, uh, and plenty of spare capacity there. But if you do want to attend in person, you're going to need to buy a ticket fast. As I say, if you can't attend in person, don't worry, you can do so online. We've got plenty of capacity for you to be able to do so that's not a problem. If you can't make it on the day, but do want to catch up on the talks afterwards, what I would suggest is that you buy yourself a ticket anyway, because we will give you access to everything that we record, and we'll post it online when the event is over, but that will only be for those who buy the tickets. You have the option of attending for one day or both days, so please scroll down through all of the ticket options. Online attendance is inevitably cheaper than in-person attendance because I don't have to buy you tea and coffee. Um, and if you're a member of the NRWGC, you'll save £5 a day. So if you attended both days, you actually recoup £10 of your £25 membership. And that's kind of how we try and run things at the charity, that ultimately being a member means that in the long run you end up saving money through one form or another. If you are keen on becoming a member of the charity or you just want to find out more on what it tries to achieve, I'm also going to put a link to the charity's website in the show description, www.nrwgc.com. If you aren't up for becoming a member, believe me, I totally, totally get that. But do consider if you'd be willing to just chip us a few pounds here or there. If you are, firstly, a massive thank you. Um, you use the same website, www.nrwgc.com. Consider coming along to our events as well. You know, if you're curious about what we do but need to decide if we're right for you, come and say hello. More than anything else, though, please spread the word. Word of mouth is far and away the most powerful tool, not just in terms of making people aware that we are here to help if they come across a veteran's grave, but also in terms of having the discussion on what should happen to the remains of those from this period. Those who died in the 20th century were all given the dignity of a marked grave. Those who had the misfortune to die in what amounts to the wrong war were not. And this is an opportunity to start putting that right. 
So I will leave you in the capable hands of the NRWGC's Heritage Officer, Marcus Cribb, as he interviews the charity's chair, that's me, and fellow trustee Ed Koss in a reprisal of an episode we did 11 months ago. I hope you enjoy. Oh, and welcome to the Napoleonicist. You are not hearing the voice of Zach White, but please do not adjust your sets. Uh, we are having a very special episode today. Uh, we're talking about uh, a new charity. And I must just put a disclaimer out there. I am heavily involved with this, uh, but I'm going to sit down and act as the host today very kindly. So you're actually listening to Marcus Cribb normally on the other side of the Napoleon system. I've got the great honour of being the host tonight. But we are joined with Professor Ed Koss uh, of the United States Command and General Staff College. Hopefully you've read his fantastic book, All for the King's Shilling. And he's one of the founding trustees of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity and a lot of the history of behind that. Ed, how are you doing? Good. Really glad to, really glad to be here. Oh, it's excellent to have you back on. Last time we were both uh, gloves off, uh, pistols at dawn and uh, debating. The other individual that you'll be hearing tonight is a good friend of mine, a regular voice, funnily enough, to everyone listening, Mr. Zach White, soon to be PhD. Hello, Zach. How are you doing? Hello, mate. It's good to see you again. Can I just say the control freak in me is absolutely losing it. Uh, handing over the reins um, but I'm hoping that I'm in safe hands with this one and thank you for agreeing to step in because ethically I couldn't exactly interview myself in my capacity as chairman but you look very uncomfortable uh, this is not going out on video but he was biting his fingernails squirming there's a bead of sweat running down his uh, forehead and I'm sure down his back as well he does actually look really like he isn't enjoying himself on his own podcast. And Zach absolutely loves podcasting. So this is very unusual. Uh, and I think Ed's quite enjoying watching him squirm. Uh, but we're actually here all on the, the same page. Uh, we're very much here for a good cause and a cause that is close to all of our hearts. And we, I don't mean that flippantly. This is a really, really important uh, charity. And I'm going to try to not get involved on interviewing myself as Zach said so let's take it all back to the beginning the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity Zach what is the thinking behind this charity and what are its aims well I'm going to be a little bit pretentious in terms of how I start answering that so I'm going to get folks to think a little bit in today's society what happens if one of our brave servicemen or women falls in the line of duty well the answer is pretty obvious, right? They're repatriated and they're buried with full military honours. We've come to expect that. That's a fundamental given in terms of how we honour the sacrifice of our service personnel. Rewind 100 years, what happened to those men who fell in the service of their country during the Great War of 1914 to 18? Well, again, the answer is pretty obvious. They were buried in those immaculately preserved cemeteries that you can find across the world, the, the, those maintained by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Uh, for those in the UK, there are different organisations that manage things for Germany, for uh, France and for the United States. And what that essentially means is that 
our sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters, and going all the way back to our grandfathers and even great grandfathers, receive that very basic human dignity of a hole in the ground with something on that site acknowledging who they were and what they did. And we take that as a given. It's been the case for 100 years. It's become the norm. But what about our grandfathers, grandfathers and great grandfathers? What folks may not be aware of is that the Commonwealth War Graves charity coverage stops at around 1914. There are some exceptions there, but predominantly if they are buried outside of, or rather before the First World War, there's nothing to cover them. Yet there's the sacrifice of those who died before the Great War quite obviously isn't worth any less just because they had the misfortune to die in what is essentially the wrong war. Regardless of whether or not you believe life is sacred, the fact remains that a life given in the service of a nation is a tragedy, and that should be honoured. And that's the fundamental principle behind the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity. So putting it into context, we're talking about great-grandfathers and 1914, but actually that's 100 years ago for us, give or take. We're talking 100 years and a bit before that. So these men's uh, great-grandfathers, they don't have this organisation. So we're, your, they are aiming to do some uh, real good here. Ed, what are the aims of um, this charity for us? I hate to speak overall, but uh, Zach had a key word in there, uh, tragedy, which I think could also be a synonym for sacrifice. So as someone who's taught at Command General Staff College and seen those kind of sacrifices through Afghanistan and Iraq, and regardless of whether we should have been there or not, these men and women make real sacrifices. I, I was surprised that taking care of fallen soldiers wasn't a given and that these individuals from the past are often seemingly now relegated to anywhere we can put them. It, it, they've seemingly lost some of their humanity. They've lost, and we've lost, I think as a society, a recognition of sacrifice and honor and what you're supposed to do with men and women who who give what they always call the, the ultimate sacrifice. So the aims would be to open up this charity in a way that would be able to assist both intellectually, procedurally, and then maybe financially to, to, uh, to do the right thing when a soldier, for example, from uh, the Napoleonic period is found in a farm field someplace. What, what should we do with that? individual. Uh, ignore him, uh, put him in an outdoor ossuary, or could we possibly get him some kind of her some kind of, mostly him in this case, uh, a proper burial someplace with a plaque and a recognition that they, and try to do some research into who they are. And, uh, there, and there's a lot of other scientific things I'll get to soon. 
but there is a, a great deal of good uh, scientifically we could gather from from these bodies and then a great deal of societal good I think that we could uh, engender by giving them their due respect and proper burial. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're talking about the respect and burial of the fallen soldiers here, but Zach, it's not going to be just the fallen soldiers for this period. There's, there's been a, quite a decision and debate upon this uh, between everyone in this room, and um, we should take the time actually to uh, acknowledge all the other trustees and people involved, and we'll list them later, uh, but thank you to them. But it's not just those fallen soldiers, is it? No, it's not. So inevitably, in my capacity as chair, I kind of approach this from a legal perspective because we had to kind of craft this um, founding constitution from that legal perspective. So some of these aims that I'm just going to kind of talk us through are going to sound a little bit wordy, but they have to be wordy to make sure that we are legally covered. So I'm going to kind of break it down as we go through them. The first and the most obvious aim is to work what we describe as, as working collaboratively and supportively with museums and other stakeholders to study the remains of members of the armed services, deliberate choice of wording there, who served at any point between 1775 and 1815, and members of auxiliary forces who died as a result of their service between 1775 and 1815, irrespective of nationality, in order to secure their release for burial. So there are lots of important things I want to, to tap into there straight away. The first is the supportive and collaborative element. Marcus will know full well that I can be an absolute diva at times. And this was one of my diva moments in the founding of the charity, Marcus nods knowingly, um, when I turned around and said that we are always going to be supportive and collaborative in the way in which we go about our business. We have a, a fundamental tension here, which is that once remains are dug up, they become an artifact. Now that's not necessarily something that people will like to hear, but it is nonetheless a, a fundamental truth of the issue that we're trying to solve here, which is that these are objects for study for archeologists. And when they hand those remains over to museums and local authorities, as they must do, as to, to make those institutions custodians, they then become the property, they become artifacts that the, the museum or other organizations are required to hold and to preserve. So we have a, an issue here where we could turn around and say, you know, this is, this is disgusting, this is disgraceful, and you know, we need these, these human remains and we need, we have the right to bury them. That's not going to work. It's not gonna work on a number of levels. The most fundamental is that in trying to sort of kick down the door on inverted commas, we do a disservice to the very people that we're trying to honour. The dead deserve more than to have an unseemly row about who has the inverted commas right to these remains. The people who have the rights to these remains are the people whose remains they are. And so they deserve the whole discussion to be treated with far more respect. The other point is that you know, these are professional organisations we're dealing with. They haven't just decided on a whim that they're going to keep these remains in a, a dusty storage unit. They have problems themselves that they need to deal with in terms of finding an appropriate response to dealing with these human bodies. You know, th these things cost money. If you want to put them in the ground, that doesn't cost nothing. That There's a huge expense there, which we'll get on to discussing later. So we want to work with local stakeholders because we respect and understand the fact that we are basically saying, look, we want you to give up an aspect of your collection 
and give it to us and we will go put it in the ground. Now, if you said to somebody, you know, you know that priceless, you know, um, coin gold collection of gold coins that you found, we want to just take those off your hands and, and stick them in the earth. You can imagine the kind of response that you'd get. Now, obviously the situation is different because we're dealing with human remains, but there's still a conversation that needs to be had here. So that's why the collaborative and the supportive element is there to see what we can do to assist these organizations so that we can basically alleviate any concerns that they have about the process and make sure that if they decide that there is a value to having things like bones on display, we can actually say, well, look, what if we provide you with 3D models and resin casts of these remains? You can then put those on display and gain an, an, an educational benefit from them in your displays. But at the same time, we can actually put the remains in the ground, which is where we feel they belong. And that kind of in itself generates a, a site where people can go to remember. And that's quite significant in all of this. So that's your supportive and collaborative element. The next bit to emphasize is, and this is wordy, but members of the armed services who served at any point between 1775 and 1815. Two important things there. Firstly, the date range. Now the date range is not designed to imply that anybody who dies pre 1775 or post 1815 is not worthy. That's obviously complete nonsense. It's a reflection of the fact that this charity has been formed with professionals who specialize in this period. We have to have a start point and we have to have an end point because otherwise we'd be doing everybody in recorded history. You have to have a cutoff somewhere. So our philosophy was let's bring experts of this period together where they understand the period and can comment and can research properly to make sure that we, we do this process. It's, it's due diligence. Armed services is deliberately plural. We include the Navy within that and members of auxiliary forces who died as a result of their service. So there's a division here. If you were an individual who served in any capacity in the regular inverted commas army, doesn't matter how you died or when you died, you are eligible for our funding. When it comes to the auxiliary forces, you're looking at a much larger pool. So the thinking was that we have to, again, have dividing lines and cutoffs somewhere. And so therefore, if auxiliary personnel died in the service of their country or as a direct result of wounds received in the service, then yes, they'll be eligible. And the last thing is irrespective of nationality. And this is really important. So we are transnational in perspective. This isn't a British organization. You can hear this already. We have an American in the room. That's not an accident. We also have folks from the Netherlands, from Spain. So we are bringing together a multinational team with a multinational outlook. We are actively engaged in conversations with folks out in Spain relating to remains over there. We're having discussions about um, individuals buried in Germany who served in the Prussian army. We likewise will in time have conversations about French personnel. Somebody was messaging me the other day about French prisoners of war. There are no boundaries because the fundamental premise of this is to honor those who died in the service of the country. We're not gonna sit here and say, well, you died for the service of France, therefore you're not eligible. That's nonsense. The sacrifice is the same, regardless of the reasons that they fought, what they did and what they gave is the same. And so our philosophy is that as death is the great leveler, everybody is eligible. Now that's only aim number one. Um, aim number two essentially is to facilitate the burial. So I mentioned how we look to um, work with museums for the study of the remains. 
in an as respectful process as is humanly possible. But as that first aim said, you know, that's a prerequisite for securing their release. So we won't be engaging in research of remains unless we can secure an agreement where we say that at the end of that process, once we've learned everything we possibly can, we then have an agreement that those remains will be buried. Now, again, the same rules apply. Um, but again, it's all about making sure that this is done in an appropriate way that deals with local concerns, that deals with local tensions and tries to find a way forward that means as many people as possible are happy. Third aim is to restore the gravestones and funerary monuments of known burial sites of veterans of all nationalities who served between 1775 and 1815, because you've got to bear in mind that for many, they survived the war, but they still served. And that deserves to be recognised. And there are plenty of graves out there in horrendous states of repair that need basic maintenance doing to them. And we're not talking about simple things like cutting the grass. We're talking about cracks in headstones. We're talking about subsidence of graves. And if we can find a way again to work with the local stakeholders to restore those graves to some semblance of dignity, then that's what we, we are going to do. Um, again, being very careful, and we'll discuss some of the challenges that are involved in that in due course. The, the fourth aim is to educate the public about the life. So it's not just about the dead. This is about the living as well and kind of using memory of the dead and what they did as a way of better understanding the lives of soldiers and the wider conflicts of this period. And then finally, obviously, what does that cost money? So we need to raise money. Um, we're not going to start begging people for money at the end of this, but we'll, we'll get there in terms of how much this is all going to cost. But it's it's large, large sums of money that we're looking at. Um, projects in excess of £25,000. Now, to some people, that's that's peanuts. To the folks in this room, that's a lot of money. Um, and, and that would be, you know, one single project. So there's a lot that we need to do in terms of bringing all of that together. But that that's us, effectively. That's That's what we're here to do. I mean, it's a huge scope, but it's so exciting, isn't it? I mean, this is not being covered by anyone else, especially not on an international organisation to have the honour, the dignity and the research pan-national. As you said, we've got some fantastic involvement from the Netherlands, from Spain, from Ireland and America, just at this founding moment of all these nations. And I know that you both are in conversations with other nations and I'm sure it will grow and will definitely involve uh, France and Russia and, and, you know, different continents as well. This is not just about Europe and uh, Europeans. So it's and it's also very rare to have the non-combatants involved, which gives it a huge social scope as well. Um, but to take it back to where people might be a bit more familiar, I'd love to hear about the the, the prequel to the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity. And Ed, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the Bones of Burgos project. I certainly can. I think, although I should first apologize because, well, it's, it's great that we have you and Zach who are both uh, measured and diplomatic when you're dealing with these topics. And I can get sometimes, well, I can get a bit uh, zealous when we talk about soldier dignity. And I, I and that'll tie into this question. I also don't mean to step on the auxiliaries uh, in, in my uh, opening. It's just the, the vast majority of what we will be dealing with will be uh, service folk. So I tended to overstep that. I didn't mean to. 
Oh. No, absolutely. It will be a huge part of it. And I think we will struggle to find those auxiliaries. But you're right. You know, when they come up, they will be given the due respect. You're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, here's the background. So in uh, summer of 2008, a project was begun about a walkway outside of Burgos, adjacent to a highway, uh, close to the medieval fortress. So in the process of digging up that sidewalk, uh, they found 8,000 ceramic fragments. And this was done by two Spanish archeologists, Martinez and Arita. And they found the remains of at least six male, and you definitely have to call them, I think, although we will find this out in some due course, these are service folk or at least, or perhaps auxiliaries. Uh, the bones came from three cuts. They were obviously there. They had to do with the, the assault on the Burgos Fort in the fall of 1812. And apparently they were buried in place during the time of the assault, just dirt shoveled over them and there they stayed. But once they were discovered, it became a real thing for me because I was one fascinated by them. And then in, in some ways I was, I was surprised, and this has been a journey of discover, discovery for all of us <clears throat> to define that, to discover that there are no universal rules for dealing with this. Hence the necessity of having you and Zach who are very measured and, uh, and very conscious, aware, aware of that there's going to be different national standards, different museum standards, different. And I thought there was a general standard dealing with soldier remains. Well, I was wrong. I was dead wrong. Uh, so I jumped in with both feet and initiated a, a talk with Charles Esdale. And pretty soon we had this awesome project. I went on to, uh, it was almost just by being bold and not knowing what's, that there should have been a closed door, but if you keep pounding on it, and I did, I ended up with uh, a real connection to Doug Owsley, who was the Smithsonian's bone detective. And he said, after some convincing, but he was very generous, he said they would do a, I'm gonna read this, a systematic collection of osteological data for each set of skeletal remains using standardized methods in bioarchaeology and forensic anthropology. They would determine the nationality of each man, the cause of death, uh, evaluate skeletal and dental pathology, quote, noting modifications indicative of infectious disease, degenerative changes, trauma, uh, tumors, as well as anti-mortem uh, tooth loss, abscesses, lesions, periodontal disease, dietary information, and then be able to identify by the isotopes, whether this was a Spanish individual, a French or a British, it was, it was, they were gonna do it all for nothing for us. And I was really enthusiastic and uh, delivered several papers in the United States of all places. And they were some of the most well-received papers I've ever delivered. People were on the edge of their seats wanting to find out what, what would come of this because we both had the scientific value. And then I naively thought, well, 
how hard can it be then to get these individuals a proper burial? And that opened it up, that opened up lots of, lots of issues. And uh, so I began to, Charles and I began to seek funding. I, I sought it through the Command General Staff College Foundation, through universities over here. Uh, he did it through universities in Great Britain. We couldn't find anybody to come up with the money, which was basically about, it was gonna be less than $4,000 for the transport. And again, the Smithsonian was gonna do all, the, all this work for nothing. And we just kept running into barriers in regards to, uh, okay, when you get them home, are they going to go back into the museum at Burgos and just be either on display or in a back room? Because as Zach pointed out, they, they do really belong to the museum at that point. And I was hoping that we would be able to swap out at resin casts and do something appropriate with them. But boy, this is open up lots of avenues that I was not individually capable of chasing down and the funding ground us to a halt. Uh, Zach, you wanna pick it up because you picked it up later. Yeah, so, I mean, what pleases me in, a, in an odd kind of way about this, you know how one of the big archeological discoveries of our era was discovering Richard III under a car park in Leicester and everyone was banging on about the king in the car park. So I, this is very self-indulgent of me, but I kind of like the fact that the first time I heard about this, I was in a car park. Um, I was in the middle of a, I was literally actually outside a sports club. Not that you'll usually find me anywhere near a sports club, but we won't go into that. Um, Marcus looks very perplexed. <laughs> were, you, were you burying another one of our previous monarchs or? No, no, nothing, nothing as uh, macabre as that, don't worry. Um, okay, good. Yeah, in fact, I was I placed a quick call to Ed to discuss another project that we were working on to do with a conference. This was way back in, I think it was 2019 now. Um, and I was hooked, you know, just the idea that you've got these remains, you're on the cusp of being able to find out what you can about them and then should be able to get them buried. All of these things are things that you don't need to be a military historian to feel strongly about this. Um, and it, it was a no-brainer that, you know, this was something that needed to happen. Yes, it's the opportunity. It's so rare for us to come across the remains of service personnel from this period. And and that was a we know because of the buttons, 58th foot, 88th foot, this is a British regiment, uh, 65th uh, French regiment to lean, buttons of the 119th regiment. We are pretty sure, given the buttons buried with them that these are soldiers. Yeah, um, there are all kinds of questions actually, because when you start to look as we did at the service records and particularly the death records. So the British army keeps, if you like, a book of the dead um, that tabulates who's died within each regiment over a period. And one of the things we will be looking at is mining that as a source of information as part of our educational work. Um, it's, it's quite clear that some of the regimental attributions that have been made don't really work. You've got to do some pretty bizarre gymnastics to make this feed together because you've got regiments, regimental buttons for units that are 30 miles away appearing 
in these burials at Burgos. So there are all kinds of questions that don't tie in. And this is what I started to find. The more that we scratch the surface of the report, and the report is as, as good as it can humanly be, right? I'm not sitting here slating the archaeologists who did the report. They did a great job on it. It's incredibly thorough. It's a document that's hundreds of pages long, and it's all in Spanish. And it was a nightmare to translate the relevant bits, but we got there in the end. Um, so they've done the best job they can. And based on the observations, they've come to some tentative conclusions. But when I started showing pictures of the burial sites themselves to osteoarchaeologists, we were having conversations about how, although we think you know, they were buried where they fell, there's also evidence to suggest that these men have been moved. So they're all on their back. Every single one of these individuals is buried on their back. Now that's significant because if somebody dies, they don't automatically fall backwards. So that kind of suggests that these individuals have been moved. Also, when you look at the placement of some of the legs, it does seem to imply that they've been buried in quite a hurry and that there wasn't enough space dug out for the whole limb. And so, you know, they've, they've had one foot placed over the other. That's quite a common technique that you see in burials where it's done in a rush that you, know, you have one foot placed over the other because they haven't worked out enough space for, for both legs. Um, Ed, go for it. You're waving Just, at me. But on the other hand, when we know how valuable shovels were, there's a shovel underneath one of them. So if they had been moved, that shovel would have been taken. So and it's, it's, it's that, a conundrum. That's the great contradiction, right? Because that individual that you're talking about who has the shovel underneath him is one of those with the legs crossed. So we, we've got such huge contradictions in terms of what may or may not have happened here. But essentially, you know, to get back to your original question, Marcus, about, you know, where does this idea come from? I picked it up and I tried to run with it. Um, I think Ed was very unfortunate in that when he tried to put his project together, the credit crunch hit. And so a huge amount of funding just dried up overnight. I was on the cusp of having got a, a team together, a slightly different team to the one that we have now. And we were about to start reaching out to the museum and starting to engage in conversation when COVID hit. So by the time we'd got everything together, it was March, 20, January to February, 2020. And then along in March came COVID. Um, so that kind of put the mockers on things. It was very hard to get any communication in and out of Spain because you know the, the whole world just stopped moving for very obvious and fair reasons. But that gave us time to think. And in a way, I think the fact that we were forced to pause probably did the project more good because in the process, we began to realize that this wasn't an isolated thing. So folks might remember that recently in Holland, they found a quite large, something like 40 odd individuals. Uh, great, in fact, Marx is gesturing that it was more. How many was it, mate? Yeah, I was looking at this before the podcast and this is kind of where I started to hear about this. It was a, they think a hospital from one of the um, coalition wars, I think the war, the second coalition, they think uh, they're, they're talking 80 plus bodies, um, allies. And one of the reports was saying, as it was a hospital, more than likely, there could be other, I use the term pits, um, in literature is in archaeological there could be more sites and pits for these bodies so this could you know it could expand well north of 100 um mostly men uh likely buried there from allied forces in the netherlands so that's a huge amount of remains um and again again to putting it into the context of some of the earlier if those remains were found from the, the first or second world war or more recent you know, there would be uh, national services and, and gravesides. Soldiers uh, would be sent out along with priests and, you know, dignitaries to bury them. 
that's not been anything on the cards as far as anyone's aware on this. Certainly not that I've heard. And as you can imagine, as you know, we've been going through the process of setting this charity up, I've been keeping an ear to the ground, kind of hoping to and watching with a great deal of interest to see, you know, what's the, the lay of the land when it comes to these individuals. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things also a kind of growing awareness of the fact that the, the individuals at Burgos were not isolated. So those remains are now stored within Burgos City Museum um, because, you know, that's, that's the nearest repository. But if folks think about if they've ever been to Waterloo, um, if you've been to La Dernier Quartier, Napoleon's last headquarters from the night before Waterloo, there's an ossuary. Uh, it's literally a brick shed, a very small brick shed, in which a number of bones have been placed that were dug up as a result of farming processes over the years. Now, if you go to Dernier Quartier, then what you will find is that there's a metal kind of grill, a bit of wire mesh over the front of that, and it's open to the elements. Now, is that how we deal with personnel? I don't know. This is, this is part of the discussion. It's an open-ended question. There are actually, for folks who aren't aware, when they dug the foundations for the Memorial 1815 Museum, they found the remains of a soldier. And there was a big debate about who this guy was. Gareth Glover came out with suggestions on who it might be. The museum isn't kind of confident about whether or not they can be certain on that. Um, but ultimately, they, they had a reasoned discussion and they considered it carefully and decided that it was more beneficial to put those remains on display. So if you ever go to the Memorial 1815 Museum and you see some remains in a glass case, those are original. That is the guy. That's him. That's not a, a replica, as a lot of people assume, uh, or at least certainly from what the museum said, that's what we are all led to believe reading their literature. So... You know, there are, there are all kinds of questions, and this is part of the, the thing that we're facing, that there needs to be a conversation. We need a bit of consensus on what's right with these. And I'm not saying, sitting here now, that what the museum is doing is something that shouldn't be done, because that's part of the discussion that we need to have. What I'm saying, and I'm obviously being diplomatic, and that's kind of where the hat as chairman comes in on this, we need to start thinking about what we do with these remains and where is the boundary at which we stop honouring the war dead and start viewing them as artefacts. It was just at that same time that I was really deep into the Burgos that uh, my wife and I made a trip to Waterloo and I discovered that very open air ossuary. And in, in some part of me was almost in awe out of total respect for the individuals in there and just being able to look at them and kind of connect to them. And then almost immediately afterwards, while I was standing there, I went, that's the best that we can do. I mean, collectively, I, and again, that's the time I was naive and thought that there was a, a general consensus about these things. And that's when my eyes began to be open that in fact there isn't a general consensus and that uh, displaying human remains is maybe acceptable in certain areas and putting them even respectfully they're just storing them in an outdoor museum and they're deteriorating outdoor that ossuary I, I was 
that that just drove me to uh, have those initial discussions with you. I figured there had to be a, a full consensus, but there isn't one. Hence, part of the charity's aims is to engender discourse, to uh, open perhaps with conferences, some ideas, some, to some standards so that if we end up with the bodies of five or 10 or one, do, we, do they just go to the local museum and get stashed away? Do they, I would be, and this is just Ed being Ed again, uh, I would be appalled if that was potentially, and I was proud to have one of my ancestors serve in the light company of the second battalion of the first foot guards. If that, we, we could determine that he, he fell at Burgos and, or wherever, and he was on display someplace. I, I don't think that would be something that would make me proud and, and want to uh, travel to see his remains. So I'm just ardent, and I guess I'm the way the US Army deals with all these, it would be no question, but I've had to broaden my understanding and my awareness that different rules, different countries, different uh, viewpoints, but uh, yeah, that's where it all started with the Bones of Burgos and a trip to Waterloo and then discussions with you, Zach. I mean, this is fascinating. So it's so different, isn't it? Because we it's so easy to think about, you know, down the road from Waterloo is Mons. And uh, if a body was found from the 1914 conflict, uh, the fantastic organisation, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, uh, if they were British or allied, or, uh, would take over. Uh, there's there's sister organisations in, in America and for uh, European counterparts. And they'd bury them with real dignity. And then if you had a memorial museum nearby, if just one of those bodies was on display, it would feel really against the grain and cause real controversy. Yet we don't have that with um, the, you know, the kind of modern, very early modern era that we're covering, which begs the question. So Waterloo is quite well known uh, that sadly, uh, after the battle, and the, the field is effectively mined as a source of fertilizer. So that's kind of a bit of an exception, uh, a really sad exception. And I, I, I struggled to just compute it because it was when the bodies were, you know, still relatively whole. It was uh, a few years after the battle. It was very fresh. But why do we not have these big memorial uh, graveyards, these, these set piece graveyards from... Um, you know, the wars of the First Coalition or the uh, Revolutionary Wars, Napoleonic Wars, Peninsula War. Why do we not have these rows of white headstones for both sides where people paid respect? Uh, I don't know if Ed would want to pick that up. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. No, because I have no answers. I have, uh, and then it's crass of me, but in the end, I think it ends up being governmental cost. Uh, I could, that's just spitballing, but uh, as, as we've investigated the cost of an individual to get uh, one of these uh, combatants, uh, I hate to use that word because that's the wrong word, uh, these servicemen, uh, buried is not cheap. And to establish public lands and <clears throat> take on the expense of burying them is not a cheap thing. Now in America, they have the, the park service, which has total responsibility. And I talked with a very learned individual over here about that. And he said, even today, if any soldier is found on park service ground, any remains, that then he goes, they go immediately to the Smithsonian for the full uh, analysis. And then the park service based on national federal funds uh, is in charge of reburying that soldier with honors. I mean, it's just, that's the way. So when I was asking him what role this, our charity might serve, he, he informed me on if they're found on uh, park service grounds, the park service takes care of everything. And I just, well, we've been to Spain, how many, uh, how many service, British service or even Spanish servicemen from the peninsula era are buried in one of these parks as you described. That's it. So you've, especially some of these areas of Spain, and then, you know, we hear of Flanders and it's, it's such contested ground fought over by generations of generation. I've been to uh, graveyards in um, the low countries where you've got first world war soldiers in the same graveyard as second world war from the same regiment, Durham and Blackwatch are both there, sadly. Uh, same, you know, generation apart fighting the same ground. So, Zach, maybe why do why did these graveyards not get widely established in the contemporary uh, period as well? I think you've got to bear in mind there's a different philosophy to burial of the war dead during this period. So, what we see with the Commonwealth war graves that's very much a First World War phenomenon that's born out of the scale of conscription and therefore the scale of death that happened as a result of that truly total war. Now, we could sit here and have a debate about was the Napoleonic era a, a time of total war? We, we've done that, actually. Listen to the last podcast, folks. But quite crucially, it was it's, it's kind of important to recognise that the Great War, as it was known back then, was a watershed moment. And the scale of the grief and the scale of the death meant that a new answer was required. Before that point, we have a very different way of thinking about this. So... A lot of these battlefields, you've got to bear in mind that they're, they're one event, they're one day, and then the army moves on. So, for example, at the Battle of Salamanca, 22nd of July, British army's on the battlefield. 23rd of July, they've crossed a river and they're marching on. They are pursuing the French. So what happens to the dead? Absolutely nothing. They are left there in situ to the point that we physically know from contemporary accounts that when the British army pulled back to the same region, uh, months later, so in November, they camped amongst the bones of the dead. 
from that battle because they occupy pretty much the same ground as they had back in July. So this gives you a sense of some of the logistical challenges straight away. Now, if you, I don't want to be gruesome about this, um, but you can imagine what happens if you leave uh, a body out in the elements, it becomes disturbed by animals, all kinds of things happen. So that instantly complicates the situation. You've also got a fact that if you're going to bury these individuals, you probably do it for sanitary reasons because of issues of disease and you do it quickly because there isn't this philosophy about individual sacrifice and that therefore means they all get lumped into mass graves, which often means French and British and Spanish and Portuguese all buried together because they need to be placed somewhere where they aren't going to represent a sanitary risk. It's a very kind of Machiavellian way of thinking about it. It's kind of a, a pragmatic way of thinking about it, but it's a way of solving a problem. And that doesn't happen universally. So we've, we're talking about Burgos because that was kind of the origin story for this charity. We happen to know that the uh, remains of many who fell during that siege were left out in the elements over the winter to the point where when the ground thawed the following spring, the locals were complaining to the French about the fact that there were these bodies everywhere and they were causing health issues. And the French turned around and said, well, look, it's, it, I think actually part of the issue was that this was a particular issue in the Jewish quarter and there was a kind of an anti-Semitic element to them saying, this, is, this isn't our problem. You go sort it. They're, they're in your section. They're not in the castle. We don't care. So you've got all kinds of issues here. I also happen to know that burial where it happened wasn't what we would consider burial in, in a modern sense of the term. So if you were lucky, you might get a quick hole in the ground. We also know that some of those graves were disturbed. Marcus has already talked about Waterloo and how the graves were basically plundered to use the bone as fertilizer. So these bones were, were ground up um, and used to, to farm the landscape. Britain had a, a thriving trade in this. We know a similar thing happened um, on the, the ground on which the Battle of the Nations was fought. So this is not a unique thing to Waterloo. I also have come across stories of people being buried in dunghills, which again, and this is, these are from British accounts where, you know, they've, they've got a, somebody who's died in a hospital, there's a nearby dunghill, they just stuck him in that. Um, so, you know, this is a very different way of thinking about the dead. And that's fundamentally the problem that we have here. Bear in mind that, you know, honouring the living, honouring those who survived with things like medals doesn't happen until after the Battle of Waterloo is over. Waterloo is the first battle where we see a, a campaign medal. So you've got very different ways of thinking about sacrifice and, and service. That was beautifully described about the immediacy of uh, burial after conflict. Uh, and then so we end up with two issues, really, two different bifurcated but connected. One is that ultimate immediacy and what happens to the bodies. What I was thinking about was more modern. Why don't we have small cemeteries when these bodies are brought up? Why aren't they? That's what I was referring to. We don't really have either one. Yeah, and um, so to answer the question about costs, which you raised earlier, Ed, yes, you're absolutely right. To give people a ballpark figure, 
and this is a very rough estimate to study and bury a one individual, you're looking at perhaps £5,000 per person. So, you know, you can see how these things stack up. So we think that there are five or six individuals involved in the Burgos project. I personally think that it's more likely to be five, but we won't go into that. That's, again, a subject of another podcast that's gone before. So 5,000 by five people, that's 25 grand. You know, where do you find that money from? The museums haven't got this money. Does that include the archaeological forensic it costs? Does, yeah. yeah, it does. Okay. So uh, to get, because I mean, to, more of the, we have an opportunity here to do more than just honor the fall. Absolutely. But to learn some fundamental things about health, disease, uh, you know, nationality. So it's both scientific and human, what we're trying to do with the charity. And then it think about it will span those, um, if, if I may, Zach, just because, you know, um, both Zach and I know that from Ed's uh, book, you know, these men effectively are, are fighting and starving at the same time. Their uh, nutrition levels are so low. Ed went into real uh, research. He's too modest to, to say, um, but it will bring up those things with doing the research rather than having them away are we saying that we can learn more actually by doing a short amount of scientific research and then burying them rather than having them out? Is that, is that fair? I think it absolutely is. And, and this is the point of the project, isn't it? That, you know, we lead with this idea that we will research because there is an opportunity here for us to gain knowledge. But at the same time, once we've learned everything we can, there is an argument to be made that, yes, there will be perhaps advances in science in years to come. And yes, maybe... You know, there may be some radical new thing that enables us to learn something that we can't possibly envisage right now. But we, we can't ever look into the future. What we do know is that we are able to gather a significant amount of information about these people's lives right here, right now. Huge amounts of info. So to act on that is, is a huge opportunity. So to give people, uh, let's, let's delve into this, shall we? Because we're talking numbers. So to conduct a, a standard analysis of a skeleton is 500 pounds. Once you paid for lab time, technician fees, et cetera, et cetera, 500 quid basically per set of remains. That doesn't include really advanced techniques, things like strontium isotope analysis, oxygen isotope, nitrogen. So you've got to add money on top. Um, and then you've got the burial cost. Now burial costs, we estimate to be maybe 2,000, 2,500 a body once you've bought coffins and you've um, paid for headstones and memorial services and so on and so forth. So start, so you can see why we get to a, a 5,000 pound approximate price tag. Then think about what you were saying just now, Marcus, about the, the remains in that mass grave. So we've, as we've been talking, we've gone and done our homework as it were on this and found that it's actually 81 individuals that they've identified. 81 times 5,000, I'll tell you now, that's 405 thousand pounds how do you source that kind of money and this is the problem right who do you turn to and say look we need 405 grand to bury these people it's just a huge cost that needs to come from somewhere and this is what we're here to do the cost is so large and yet the idea that we could look at infectious disease degenerative i'm reading off owsley's uh, letter to me degenerative changes trauma, task activity uh, uh, markers on the bones, 
periodontal information, dietary information, times 81, what we could learn about these soldiers, their lives, their, what it was like for service. I mean, it's one thing doing it abstractly and even using the information I got out of the description books. This is another level entirely that would open up so much of our understanding, but it's not going to be cheap. It's going to come at a cost. And that's it. If, if this new charity doesn't do it, then there doesn't seem to be another organization that will be able to fund this, especially from government coffers, you know, in a post-pandemic world. Sadly, they have other priorities uh, to, to deal with this. You know, we are talking about the dead, not the living. And, uh, you know, a government's first uh, responsibility is to look after its citizens. So that really links me to thinking about this as a new organization. There seems to be a really obvious need for this, a pressing need. We're talking about uh, 81 bodies discovered at the beginning of 2021 this year of recording. Um, but is what makes this organization unique? Uh, Zach, you're the chair of the charity. Maybe you can talk us through a bit more about the uniqueness quality of it. Yeah, so... For one thing, you've got to think about date range. So we were very specific about specialism here. We gave ourselves 40 years because we could effectively build a team who really knew their stuff within that time span. So we went, this is why we're the revolutionary and Napoleonic War Graves charity. We went 1775, essentially-ish, the start of the American War of Independence through to the end of the Napoleonic Wars. That's broadly speaking the time that we cover. Yes, that's a Euro- Western Hemisphere-centric perspective, but as I say, this is an international organization and all conflicts, wherever they took place within the world, and for whatever reasons, still fall within that remit. And I want folks to appreciate that when this goes out. It doesn't matter if you're listening to this in India, in, in South Africa, wherever it might be, you know, South America, we consider all conflicts within that time frame to, to be eligible for our funding. So we brought together a team of people who were multinational because of that multinational um, influence. We brought together respected experts as well as young bloods like me, you know, people who just to kind of tap into to what Ed was saying earlier, you know, have these great ideas on, you know, hey, you know, this is possible surely, and perhaps don't have so much of a realization of the barriers and are inclined to go, you know, it's a barrier. How do we overcome this? Uh, which is why individuals like myself and Marcus are involved. You know, we're, uh, I'm, I'm flattering Marcus here by describing him as young blood. I'm sure he'll, uh, he'll appreciate that. He, uh, he raises an eyebrow. I'm very flattered. Thank you. Relatively, <laughs> relatively young. I just don't look it. Thanks. Zach. Um, but this is a, a, a multinational team that brings in many disciplines. So we have Marcus, who's a heritage expert. So Marcus particularly speaks as an expert on things like restoration having an understanding of how do you take stone and restore it to a situation where it, it can be dealt with appropriately. You know, this isn't just a case of, hey, let's take out that gravestone and put a new one in. That's, that's not actually a preference because that disturbs the grave. We don't want to disturb these people. And this is something we haven't touched on actually as an ethical issue. You don't go prospecting for dead bodies. That is a fundamental in, in science, in archaeology, but it's also a fundamental in this. And I, you know, people have, will have heard of this about within the context of this podcast, and there are probably more remains to be found out in the Netherlands. I have no question that there are. There may well be more out in Burgos. I would suggest that actually that's quite a, a high likelihood there. I don't want people going and looking for them. 
personally. And actually society as a whole does not want you going out looking for them for many reasons. One, it has to be done appropriately, which means specialists who document everything, archaeologists, people who are trained to do this. Secondly, this just isn't ethical. If somebody hasn't been disturbed, don't go and disturb them. That whole thing about rest in peace, that matters and it matters massively. And we step in at points when people have been discovered by accident and we want to put them back into the ground to ensure that they can continue to rest in peace. We are not interested in going out and trying to find people and disturbing them from their resting places. We would much rather not know that they're there, never study them and just allow them to rest because that's what they deserve. But in those situations where you know that's not the case, that's where we step in. I think it's also worth bearing in mind that there's nobody else out there that's trying to do that specific thing of putting back people back into the ground. We have organizations out there that deal with memorials and tombstones and so on, relating to a whole range of periods. And actually a number of those organizations have such a huge task on their hands that they are overwhelmed. But we are the ones who are very specifically dedicated to not only doing that, but also focusing on burying people. This is something really important to get us clarify and if you can clarify for us gents because um, a lot of people since the launch have been asking about local war memorials or more that they know and their, at their favorite childhood location that's not being covered under funerary monuments so can you just describe that just a bit of clarification for us please yeah sure so we had to be very careful in terms of where dividing lines were going to be drawn partly like funding issue i mean think about what we were saying about you know 405,000 if you were ever to go anywhere near that project with the 81 who were discovered out in the Netherlands. So when memorials are put up, they're quite often the property of the organization that put them up in the first place. Now that therefore means that there's a jurisdictional issue there, right? There are legal issues because that is somebody's property. When a gravestone has been neglected for decades, if not centuries, that's a very different issue. And so we have a different set of conversations, but we're not interested in poking our nose in the maintenance of memorials for organizations where actually they may have their own philosophies and their own affairs. And so we're not trying to step on people's toes. We're not interested in doing that. We are also very narrowly focused on war graves. So we expanded our focus just from gravestones to funerary monuments, because we have to acknowledge that plenty of people don't have a gravestone because they're buried out in a inverted commas foreign field, but they do perhaps have a plaque back home or something back home, or something on a, on a site, you know? And so we are quite happy to help with restoration costs for that, so that people have a place where they are honored. And that's fundamentally what we're here for. Ed, was there anything you wanted to add to that um, fantastic description about the, the aims here and the, the areas that's gonna be covered? Oh, I was actually kind of taken aback in a, good, in a positive way by, by Zach's answer, especially at the end, because this is all about, this is about dignity and honor. It's not about excavation. It's not about us going out looking for business. It's about what happens when these individuals are discovered. And that's really our goal is to, is to do something proper that I think their families, their, their units, their country would would understand as a show of of uh, much earned respect 
So I think that that underlines and Zach described it beautifully. Fantastic. I, it's, it's such a broad subject without the war memorials in there. And it, it really is unique. Uh, I can think of lots of charities that will look after a very narrow area of war memorials or just show respect or look after living veterans or their widows, but nothing of this scale for so long ago. But something that we can feel so connected to because these names of these battles we know, or if not, as I was saying, you know, hopefully people know about other conflicts in Flanders or they'll know about the South African wars from the Boer War but maybe not realise that there is a kind of Napoleonic era to this. South America gets hugely involved, India, all these countries, Russia, there was very recently a high profile case of reburial and repatriation uh, within Russia and, and France at the highest level so there seems to be some good work going on there but at a very narrow level really within the scope of the wide conflicts that Napoleonic Wars have often been described as a global war if not a world war. Um, if I can just bring this on to quite a, a serious point here so we are dealing with the remains of individuals, with men and women, some of whom would have died in, in the, the active conflicts, but others within, you know, possibly through starvation, exposure to elements, disease. So these are hugely emotive, as well as the added element that some of them being held by councils or museums as property. So if it's not too broad a question, uh, but a serious one, what is the thought process behind dealing with the ethical issues that are going to arise here? Yeah, there, there's a lot to consider and there's a lot yeah. for us to unpack and we have to be phenomenally careful in, in a number of different directions. So the first thing that I would emphasize is that historical accuracy is paramount. This is why we have a team of experts. So to give you a sense, um, folks will know Beatrice de Graaf has featured a number of times on this podcast. She's one of our trustees. Katrina Kennedy, also a guest on this podcast, as it happens, another of the trustees. Uh, we have experts, uh, doctors and professors out in Spain who are involved in the team. Um, so I'm Alicia Laspera, Sylvia Gregorio Sainz, for example. I actually have World War I experts. Um, Megan Kelleher, for example, is part of the committee that helps to run us day to day. Uh, we have folks from the reenactment community. So we have lots of different perspectives which enable us to mine different approaches. Um, so for example, Sam Jolly is the uh, assistant curator at the Royal Engineers Museum. She's giving us the museum's perspective. So you can see we've got lots of different angles to make sure we consider as many different ways of approaching this as possible to make sure we understand all of those different perspectives and, and we deal with those different perspectives in a way that is respectful. But the history has to be key. So pretty much everybody that I've just said to you has expertise in the Napoleonic or revolutionary era. And that's key because it means that we know where these sources are, how to mine those sources. We've done it. We've probably got um, repositories of all of this kind of stuff in, in archives at, the, at home, you know? So we, we know the history. Now that's key because it means we know where to go to prove that these individuals are eligible because there's a, a big question here about is it better to move on something and get it wrong or not move at all? And our philosophy is that you do not move and get it wrong. So everything has to be backed up by evidence, which means that people are only eligible if we can prove their service record, prove the, the era that they came from. We are also sidestepping the naming issue. We'll do the research to get a sense of who they might be. 
but it's very difficult to ever be 100%. You can, this isn't a thing about reasonable doubts. And if you're going to put somebody's name on a headstone, you have got to be 100% certain. There can be no room for question. You, how disrespectful would it be to put the wrong name on the headstone of somebody and wrongly attribute that, that body to a, a name for eternity? That's a massive problem. So we're being very careful about that. And we won't be putting names on headstones unless we have absolutely no question about who they are. But there's a good set of precedent for that. Um, I can think of many, especially Western Front uh, graveyards I've been to that are very well kept, uh, but they will have dozens and dozens of graves that will say an unknown soldier or potentially a soldier of the American forces or something to that line, because they can just know a bit, a bit, you know, as Ed was saying earlier, we have buttons and if the buttons are found, you know, directly down the, the body, then that, that there's, there's good precedent for that. I think it, people need to understand that it's very unlikely that we are going to be able to be contacting people to say it is your great, great, great grandfather um, because of DNA testing. Um, it, it's such a long time ago. It's going to be very difficult here. Um, but what do you think, maybe Ed's here, what do you think are going to be the biggest challenges you're going to face? I just wanted to add in, I mean, the best that we can zero in if we get the isotope tests is we can, we can tell nationality. We can tell regions within a country. So, so you would be able to legitimately say this is a Spanish soldier. And I think that would... That's a step towards that honor and dignity thing again. But I, yeah. I want to echo Zach's because you two are very measured and I tend to get our, have ardor and overstep. And what I've, as a historian though, you, you have a methodology that prevents you from making statements that are unsupported by research and data. You don't make suppositions, even mild ones without pretty much a mountain of evidence. And I think that fact that we have so many folks, the trustees who are, real, who are into that approach is going to help us from jumping fast and making mistakes. I, I, I've really enjoyed our meetings. I have enjoyed the discussions because they've broadened, I think our collective, and they've certainly done that for me, my understanding of all the ethical issues that are in place, the things that we should, we have such disparate, talented people that I, I like the fact that we're going to be precise. And I, let me bring that, uh, that thing you mentioned up as an example of in some degrees of imprecision. Uh, this was of such import that it showed up on the 6th September front page of the New York Times, which is no small feat. And it was about the repatriation of the French general uh, Etienne Goudin, right? This is a remains, he's killed in 1812, he's found in Russia. And when, you, when the thing started up this project, my radar went off and I went there, wow, they are, they are rocketing forward with this. But for all of this, we have to remember that there are political, there can be political uh, motivations and things in place. And in this case, they were less, both France and Russia were far less 
interested in his repatriation and burial as they were using this as some kind of a political football to connect to each other to show the world certain things. And they put on displays, they put on, and they had this huge plan. He was gonna be flown out with honors, flown in with honors, buried in Invalide. It's gonna be this big deal. I was going, wow, let's watch how this works. Uh, well, politically the deal fell apart and he was flown eventually out in a private plane with like no bodyguard, no, no guard of honor and nothing. He lands and the French were, they were recalcitrant to even have a, an official representative there to accept him. And that's a long way from a national reception of, a, and is he gonna get buried in Invalide? We'll see, you know what I'm saying? So there's a legitimate case of where honor and dignity, I think were, were set aside for political end games and things that we have to be aware of with the society of things that percolating underneath the surface so that we aren't ever responsible for, uh, I hate to use the word debacle, but this looks pretty much like a, in American terms, it looks like a dog and pony show that had ulterior motives other than honoring Boudin. And I, uh, again, I was surprised to see it on the front page of the New York Times, but that's because they, they did all the investigation and showed that this archeological project was a political project. And so we, it's just another variable that we'll have to contend with, which is why I brought it up. Yeah, so to, for folks who perhaps haven't read the article, certainly from the, the way that it was presented, it seems that a, a key motivator here was actually to put Emmanuel Macron and Vladimir Putin essentially in a room together. Um, and because of some very obvious tensions over kind of international issues that we, we won't uh, go into here, that plan fell apart. The other thing that we certainly that caught my eye was that it appeared as if they went looking for this guy. This was kind of a Richard III mm -hmm. style project. We think he's here. Um, and they, they found him underneath a nightclub. Um, in, not quite a car park, but no, not a, not a car park this time. Um, but they, they had a, a sense of where he might be and they went looking for him and they found him. Um, that, that's not what we do. And I, I explained the reasons for that earlier. Um, but this taps into a wider thing. You know, we've talked about challenges of money. We've talked about, you know, the challenges of getting it right and the ethics and the need for that debate uh, and that conversation around the war dead. But sometimes people, have, and we, we saw this actually when we launched on Twitter, you know, people saying, is this about culture wars? The answer is quite emphatically, no, it's not. You know, this is about the war dead and that's not about some kind of nationalist objective here. We're not trying, I mean, think about it. We're, we're multinational, we're transnational. We're, we're not here to make judgments and say, you know, this guy was in the right and that guy was in the wrong. We're here to just remember the dead. Think about Memorial Sunday. You know, we don't sit there and go, you know, it was, it's, it's important to honor British sacrifice, but then forget German sacrifice during the mm. First World War. That's not what we do. We stand there and we respectfully remember, and that is the charity's ethos. There are also local sensitivities that we need to deal with here. And I'm going to talk about the Peninsula War because that's what I'm most familiar with. 
But if people know the story of what happened at San Sebastian and the controversies there, they will not be surprised to hear that there is a considerable existing um, resentment, essentially, of the British out in San Sebastian. And I was recently having conversations uh, about Richard Fletcher's tomb. Uh, Richard Fletcher was uh, an engineer during, in, in the British Army during this period, uh, buried in San Sebastian. And there are all kinds of tensions there uh, where the locals still believe that, wrongly, I have to hasten to add, I'm sorry, but there's no evidence to support this, that the British burnt the town down. Now they didn't. The town was actually on fire before they stormed it. So I'm very sorry, but that, that wasn't what happened. You know, the San Sebastian was not burnt to the ground by the British. But nonetheless, because you've got that lingering resentment, we need to work, as I said at the start, supportively, collaboratively. We're not about to force our way in and say, we are going to put a memorial in here and there's nothing you can do about it. That's pointless. That's, that's not what this is about. This is about respect for the dead, not creating a scene, because they deserve better than that. So we now know a lot more about what it is about. So what is the charity aiming to do? Can you talk us both through what's been happening to now and what's happening in the immediate future? So as you said at the start, we have been waiting on registration with the Charity Commission, the, the body here in the UK, the government-based body that oversees charities and makes sure that they operate legally. It was very important to us that we went through a, a proper legal process to make sure that everything was done in an above-board manner. Now, the Charity Commission just happened to be snowed under right now. They're dealing with applications from months before we put our application in because a whole host of people in the wake of lockdown have set up charities and they just don't have the personnel to process all of those with the due diligence that's required. So we will get there, but up until that moment, we're not taking money for pretty obvious reasons. You know, all of this is being done in an above board and legal manner. There's no kind of, oh, well, I'll quietly give you 500 and why don't you get on with this? That's not how we do things. We do things in the right manner. So we're doing work short of fundraising. And if people think back to our aims that we outlined at the start, that is essentially education and research so that we are ready to spring into action as soon as the accounts are set up. So we're beginning with a lecture series. So our project's liaison, Alicia Heitmer, is setting up a, a lecture series that's going to run from this autumn. The first of those will be on the 19th of October, when I will do a kind of a formal outline, a, a launch, an online launch, if you will, into the charity and its aims and its processes and what we crucially plan to do for the future. So if folks are interested, there'll be an Eventbrite link in the description to this episode and they can click through. It's free to join. Uh, we've got plenty of spaces and folks are very welcome to join us for that. And then subsequently, we will be putting those, those lectures together. Again, all the details will be on Eventbrite and those will be free for folks to attend up until the point when we start to take membership subscriptions. And at that point, these lectures will be free for our members, but for very obvious reasons, because this is a charity and we're trying to generate income, it will be, there will be a, a small fee for non-members to attend. And all of those will be online. So wherever you are in the world, you can watch those, get involved, post comments and so on. And that's quite key in terms of how we approach this to make sure that we are accessible wherever you are on the planet, provided you've got an internet connection. We're also gathering details on eligible individuals, whether they be in museum repositories, whether they are in war graves. And actually that's one of the ways that people can kind of help us. So if you know of local individuals 
send us the details and we'll give you, you know, the, the relevant links in just a second so that we can start to gather a pool of information about who are these people, what are the projects that we can realize, how much, and basically enabling us through our own research, but also through others stepping forward and, and giving us the benefit of what they know so that we can start to move on these things and we can start to produce results because that's what we're here to do. We're all chomping at the bit, waiting to get going with these projects. And the other thing we're doing is obviously building a list of contacts, which I suspect is going to lead on into your next question in just a second, so that we have a, a pool of people who are interested, not necessarily who want to become members, but who just want to stay up to date with what we're doing. There's going to be so much going on. And I think it'll be a really exciting year when we are finally kind of let off uh, the leash with that. Is there anything that's going to be happening over the next, let's say, 12 months, Ed, that you're particularly interested that we focus on? This seems like almost a floodgate kind of a thing that we are waiting for this charity designation, then being able to raise and have a reserve of funds. I don't even know what's coming. Uh, conceptually, do I hope down deep that eventually we get something done with Burgos maybe? just to, to complete the circle, maybe. Uh, there just seems to be a, surprisingly num a surprising number of, of remains that show up and that maybe get a two inch column in the newspaper and then disappear. And you don't know whatever happens to them. You don't know whatever the resolve was. And I, I always think, well, what could we have done had we been live? What we, could we have done to, uh, to bring some dignity to the, to the reburial? Uh, so I'm not looking for anything specific. I just want us to be open as multinational as, as we can be. The other thing to, to say is let's start this conversation. We have talked a great deal about the ethics of this, about what is right and what is wrong. There are no right or wrong answers. There are just a multitude of opinions out there. But we do need to start talking about this and talking about this sensibly. So have conversations with your friends and your colleagues. Get other people involved. And I'm thinking particularly knowing that some members of the armed forces are going to be listening to this. And this will strike a chord because we are talking here about their service ancestors. And I, I know that that will matter to them. I, I might not have been a service personnel myself, but I know and I've been fortunate enough to talk to enough members of our armed forces to know how much this matters. So talk up and down the chain of command, talk in the mess, speak to people so that they just know what we're doing and can be involved in that conversation because their views matter and all of those voices need to be heard. The same applies in the reenactment communities, amongst historians, amongst archaeologists. Have those conversations so that we can start to work out what we're going to do with these people and where we go from here. Equally, you know, this is a charity and this is only going to work based on money. So if people are interested in being donors in time or being members in time, then for heaven's sake, please do get in touch. Because if you can give us an indication of how much we're going to have coming in, we can start planning for the future. We can start thinking about who do we prioritize? How do we get those results? So that as soon as the floodgates open, we move. We are dedicated, we are poised, we are ready to do this and do this in the right way, in the professional way, 
but we can't do it without your help. Very, very well put. We'd love to hear from those people. I was just going to say, uh, help us so that we can leave no one behind. A really, a really apt saying and completely true. It will be very um, resonant with members of all of the armed forces across, you know, hopefully all of the globe. Uh, these are conflicts that are still talked about there, but are not currently covered. You know, if you say to a rifleman about Salamanca, if you say to a cavalryman, I'm talking about from Britain here, about Waterloo and the charges there. But equally, we, you know, we want to hear about the French and their time in the 1813 campaign, for example. And there'll be regiments, men and women um, serving in those units. Uh, that would be a really a good connection. And there will be descendants, people who are rightly, Ed was saying um, about his own connections, people who are rightly proud of their, their family connections and you can kind of do them honor. Is there anything else you want to add? I've just got one thing I want to say at the end, Zach. Yeah, I mean, the one thing, two things I want to do is, is firstly thank everybody who's been involved in this, whether it's been as an advisor, um, whether it's been as somebody who's just supported the concept, whether it's been somebody who's already spread the word. Particularly want to thank uh, the members of the committee and the trustees. And all I would like to ask, add is uh, having gotten to know the various trustees, I've been amazed at both their dedication, but their expertise. This isn't just a group that was thrown together uh, haphazardly. Zach went to a great deal of trouble to find real experts, uh, really ethical experts who are open to exploration and open to doing all the right things. And it's been, it's been a real honor to, to attend the meetings and, uh, and learn from them. So you, you want, I'd like the viewers to know how qualified the trustees are. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Well, let's quickly talk about them. We are honoured to have uh, Zach White as our chairman. He's been really is the brain and also the kind of the momentum behind uh, all of this. Hopefully people know uh, his fantastic research that he's doing with the University of Southampton, uh, focusing on discipline within the British Armed Forces during the era. Um, and so he has been the absolute driving spirit uh, behind this. Uh, coupled with uh, Professor Ed Cost, who is from the uh, Staff College in the United States of America, which brings our first uh, international elements, but he's also published uh, All for the King's Shilling, a fantastic book and a real study into the motivations of these soldiers. Uh, after that, uh, as founding members, uh, we've got Peter Malloy uh, from the Republic of Ireland. Uh, he's actually both our treasurer and sits on the committee as well. Since founding uh, as a charity, we've gone through a few uh, additions. Uh, we've got Katrina Kennedy from the University of York, focusing on early modern studies. Uh, we've also got Sam Jolly from the Royal Engineers Museum uh, down in Kent, uh, bringing her curatorial expertise uh, to us. And Katie White, who's an osteoarchaeologist uh, currently based in Germany. And also to thank our listeners, if they've paid attention to all this time, uh, hopefully they are by this point really interested in the charity and uh, they can see where it's going to go. You know, the, the passionate uh, launch here from uh, Ed and Zach, uh, thank them both very much uh, for this. 
Uh, but hopefully they'll learn a lot more. You've heard about where this charity is going to go and why there's actually a really pressing need for it. Uh, so that is really important. Uh, you know, get get onto the uh, social media streams, listen out. Things are happening very rapidly, uh, but you haven't missed out yet. The launch event is yet to happen. And finally, a huge thanks to Zach White for handing over his baby of the Napoleonicist. Uh, I, I could see him twitch at the beginning. Hopefully it hasn't gone too badly. And I'm deeply honoured to be the first and uh, only guest host on the Napoleonicist, a podcast of which I am a fan of. I am a Patreon supporter and uh, I really enjoy listening to. So I've hopefully not dropped his baby too much and it will be business as usual coming back to you uh, from Zach's study sometime soon. So on behalf of all of the Patreon supporters and all the regular supporters and listeners, thank you so much for listening to The Napoleonicist. Just one quick thing I'm going to add uh, as a coda. Firstly, to, to thank the committee members by name. Um, so for folks who, aren't, who won't be familiar with our charity structure, we have a treasurer, that's Peter. Um, we have a membership officer, that's Matt Edson. Social media lead is Sylvia Gregorio Science. Communications officer is Megan Callagher. Our international liaison is Alithia Laspra. Our projects liaison is Alicia Heitmer. And our heritage officer is, of course, our very own Marcus Cribb. Um, so all of those folks have been integral to how we've formed this and how we've managed to get this charity off the ground. And it's no exaggeration to say, whilst that is very kind in kind of what he says about my role in putting this team together, if it hadn't been for all of their input, we wouldn't have got this off the ground in the manner that we have done. And the last thing to say is, of course, a thank you to Marcus for uh, hosting today. Uh, he didn't drop the baby too hard on its head uh, or even anywhere close to on its head. Um, so thanks very much. And it certainly wasn't a mistake to ask you to host, although I'm not sure I'll be repeating the process anytime soon. A big shout out as ever to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, Rachel Stark, Rory Muir, Liam Telford, Ger Brown and Graham Swydenbank. My Commander patrons, John Haynes, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, Michael Guest and Ross Flowers. And my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Noah Fink, Andrew Wright, David Maxwell, M. Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Miles Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coughlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson, Graham Goodwin, Graham Spicer and David Priest. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. Thank you for your patience as I go through this overhaul. And as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.